0: First things that came up was uh, was was the iPhone uh, back in 2007. That's not quite what I was looking for, but it, it's true. Uh, the, the smartphone has has really changed uh, so much of our of our daily lives. In in some ways for good, in some ways that really aren't that great. Um, but I, I was looking for other inventions that changed the world. So I scrolled down a little bit further. I found a list. I think it was like 30, 35 inventions that. Uh, that have really changed humanity, Um, and some of them were not a surprise at all. The first one on there was the wheel, and it is hard to imagine, like, if if the wheel was never invented, like, what area of our life would that not impact? Like, I'm I'm just not sure. Um, There are others, fire, I don't know if that counts as as an invention, but I get why they put it on the list. Uh, The nail, uh, the telephone, uh, printing press, electricity i'm very grateful electricity exists refrigeration uh, batteries Um, these last two i'm sure will be no surprise that both the automobile and the airplane these are all inventions uh, that have have changed changed everything in in our world and as i've sat in john 20 for the last week or so I've been meditating on, on Mary and Peter and John, the other disciples, on Thomas, and I keep coming back to this observation that when they met the resurrected Jesus, it changed everything. Uh, for them, it, it changed absolutely everything. For us, it should change everything. For the world, it, it needs to change everything. The resurrection set the earliest followers of Jesus on a totally different trajectory for eternity. Post-resurrection, these early Christ followers were sent on a mission by Jesus. He sent them to tell the world not about a great invention that would make life better, not about a self-help revolution, but about the one who conquered sin and death and offers eternal life. Praise God. So our truth statement for today is this. The resurrected Jesus, sends his disciples to proclaim the way of forgiveness of sins and eternal life through believing that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And I'll read that again. The resurrected Jesus sends his disciples to proclaim the way of forgiveness of sins and eternal life through believing that he is the Christ, the Son of God. They met the resurrected Jesus. He sent them on a mission to tell the whole world that life could be had through him, that sins could be forgiven, that they could know God himself. I mentioned that list of inventions, and while I did expect to find many of those on there, uh, there was one that I just didn't predict uh, when, it, when it had the nail on there. And I found such irony in that list that, that the nail would be on there. The nail certainly was part of changing the world, His nails were pierced through Jesus' wrists and his feet that hung him on that cross so that anyone who would trust in him could be forgiven of all their sin. Who knew the nail would have such a world changing, such eternal ramifications? Well, God did. God knew how nails would be used before man ever thought up the nail. He knew that his son would willingly suffer and die. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, Jesus would lay down his life. And his suffering on the cross was great. I don't think we can fully grasp what it means that he took on sin for us. That he who knew no sin became sin. I had a professor in Bible college that said it somewhat like this. He said that on the cross, Jesus became the thief, the murderer, the drunk, the liar, the rapist. He took on our sin. He bore the penalty for us. The cross was truly gruesome. And even for the onlookers, the ones that loved Jesus, it was no doubt exhausting. It was devastating for them. And I'm sure even a couple days afterwards that the pain was still so potent as if Jesus was still on the cross. Well, in John chapter 20, Mary shows up to the tomb really early. John tells us that it was still dark out, and I'm guessing that she hadn't slept well for days, and maybe she just needed to be near where Jesus was. She knew he was dead. She knew it was over. The man who had done so much, who had freed her, who had given her life, that man was now lifeless. He was the reason she had hope. He had done for her what no one else was able to do, and she was willing to do anything for him But there was nothing that she could do for him now. His time had ended, or as John has said over and over, his hour had come. And now what she knew was deep, deep pain and despair. The hope that she had felt was now extinguished. And all she could do was go to his tomb. Now, I don't know if she had a plan for when she got there. The tomb was blocked, as we know, by a heavy stone that there's no way... There's no way she was gonna move that. Maybe she had dreamed of somehow talking the guards into moving the stone for her, but obviously that was never going to happen. The guards were there under strict directions to guard that tomb. And then she arrives and sees that the stone had been rolled away. So it says that she ran to Peter and the other disciple who were, were pretty confident is John, the one who wrote this gospel. And she said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. And we do not know where they've laid him. And one thing we observe here is we've got to notice what she assumes and what she does not mention, what she does not say. She assumes that Jesus' body has been stolen. And apparently it wasn't uncommon for grave robbers to come in and steal the body, steal anything in that tomb, anything they thought could be worth something. So she assumes the body's been stolen. What she doesn't say is that Jesus has resurrected from the dead. And it's easy for us to look back a couple hundred years, a couple thousand years, and say, ah, oh, they, they, they thought differently about things. Right? We just know so much more than they did. And, and that's true in some senses. We do know a lot more. We have unbelievable amount of information at our fingertips. But it's easy for us to think that they were predisposed to being superstitious, to being gullible. But Mary didn't jump to the conclusion that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Even though she she knew Jesus had raised Lazarus, she doesn't go there. And I suspect that they were much more comfortable in believing in supernatural miracles probably than any of us are. But she still didn't jump to the conclusion that Jesus was alive. You couldn't even call her skeptic because it wasn't on her radar that maybe Jesus had risen from the dead. It's safe to assume that Peter and John were also devastated. Who knows how depressed they may have been. I'm sure they were wandering around in this emotionally hungover-like state as they tried to make sense of what happened to Jesus. Then they bump into Mary, and she drops this bomb on them that the stone's been rolled away, that Jesus' body is gone, and her assumption that the body's been stolen. We don't know... If they bought into this hypothesis that the body had been stolen, we do know that they want to know for themselves. What Mary said totally mattered, but they, they needed to see for themselves. They wanted to find out for themselves. And I think this is an excellent reminder to all of us no matter what you believe about Jesus, don't be intellectually lazy in what you believe. Don't just rely on what someone says, whether it's positive or negative. You've got to dig in for yourself. We've got to find out what is actually true. We've got to ask questions. We've got to turn over rocks. If you don't believe in Jesus, you should know exactly why you don't believe. The burden of proof isn't just on believers with the resurrection. The burden of proof or disproof is on people who do not believe as well. Christians, we should know why we believe in the resurrection. Non-Christians... If Christians are wrong about the resurrection, you should feel really, really bad for us. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. He says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So non-Christians feel bad for us if we're wrong about the resurrection. But if we're right, if Jesus really did raise from the dead, you'd be a fool not to follow him. You need to know. So I encourage everyone with the same encouragement, get in the Bible. We have incredible access to the Bible. I was reading the other day that uh, among the languages all over our globe, there's at least 2,000 where there's not even a Bible translation work started yet. And yet, I have three different Bible apps on my phone that have dozens of versions of Bibles. We were foolish to waste the access that we have to Scripture. So I encourage you, start reading your Bible if you're not. Join the Bible read-through. We've got several of us that are doing that. We have a women's Bible study on Fridays, men's Bible study on Wednesdays. But start reading your Bible. Peter and John, they needed to see for themselves what was going on. Now, did either of them wonder if he had risen I don't know. I, I, I kind of suspect that John might have. Certainly, in Jesus' teachings, they're, they're, it could have led them there to see that. Nonetheless, they wanted to know what had happened to Jesus. So verse 3, it says, So Peter, out with the other disciple, again, this is most likely John who wrote this gospel. He calls himself the other disciple here. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. John, um, throughout this gospel, has done an incredible job of giving us little details that matter in this gospel. And here he gives us another detail that he believes matters. He's faster than Peter. (laughs) Now, this isn't a proof text for Christian trash talk, but it does speak to men especially Throwing uh, a little friendly fire between one another. So he lets us know that he outruns. In verse 5, it says, And stooping to look in, this is John, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, and he went in the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which, is been, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up, in a place by itself. So John sees the empty tomb and it stops him in his tracks. I'm sure he's asking, what does this mean? What could this mean? So John hesitates to go in, Peter being Peter. He does not stop at all. He just walks right in that tomb and he sees the burial cloths lying there, the cloths that have been wrapped around Jesus' body. Then he sees the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head, and it was on the side. It had been folded up neatly as if to say, I won't be needing this anymore. When you've read the Gospel of John, maybe even just once, but certainly when you've read it multiple times, when you get to the resurrection of Jesus, you can't help but think of Lazarus' resurrection. Lazarus, when he came out of the tomb, what did he still have on? He still had the burial cloths. He's walking, I don't know, probably like a mummy, what we picture. He he wasn't freed from those cloths. He needed help with that. But even the cloths, the burial cloths, were no problem for Jesus. I'm assuming that his body just passed right through him. Uh, Like we see later in this chapter, he's just going to pass through a door or wall or however he gets in the room. Uh, We look at at the burial cloths and and the difference between the two, and certainly resurrection is unique. But Jesus' resurrection is even more unique. It is more special. Verse 8. Then the other disciple, who again is John, who had reached the tomb first, in case we forgot, also went in. And he saw, and it says he believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. John didn't understand everything yet but he believed. He hadn't connected all the dots, but he saw, and, and he believed in Jesus. He wrote. He wants us to know that he didn't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise yet. And Maybe you are in, are in a beginning uh, faith stage, like John here. Maybe you haven't even touched the Old Testament. Maybe you've barely even read part of the New Testament yet, but from what you've heard and what you've read, You've heard enough to begin to believe that God is growing that belief in your heart and your mind. I just want to tell you, you're in good company with John and keep digging in like John. So, Mary cuts back to Mary back at the tomb now, and she's weeping. She's distraught. She believes the body has been stolen. She sees angels, and the angels ask, Why are you weeping? She tells him, I don't know what they've done with the body. I don't know where it is. And then she turns and she sees Jesus, but she doesn't recognize that it's Jesus. And this, this seems odd. And John and the other gospel writers, they don't explain this. Because this happens to multiple people. Multiple people in different gospel accounts see Jesus. They talk to him even, and they don't recognize him. And, and we're, not, we're not told why. But then somehow Jesus reveals himself to them. It's interesting that she assumes Jesus is the gardener. Uh, multiple times, it, maybe you've picked up on this, in these last few chapters, John mentions garden a lot, over and over again. I, w- I don't know if I ever would have noticed this if Pastor Gary didn't point it out to me, but John is, is pointing us to a recreating of the Garden of Eden. Uh, we know that sin came and, 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 and messed up the original garden that God created, and we know that God is moving towards this Garden 2.0, and John seems to be giving us this glimpse, this foreshadow at the end of his gospel of what is coming, of what God is doing, pointing us to the garden city where God will dwell with his people in the new heavens and the new earth. In verse 15, Jesus said to her, "'Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking?' One writer suggests that the second question, whom are you sinking, uh, is, is asking, who did you think Jesus was? Or what kind of Jesus were you believing in? Or how small is your view of Jesus? Do you only see Jesus as this incredible teacher? Or do you only think that he just laid out really good morals for us to follow? Do you believe that he helps you when life is hard? That's what Jesus is for. Do you think that he's like a genie in a bottle that grants your wishes? Picking up back in verse 15, it says, Supposing him to be the gardener, she said, Sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll take him away. Then Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, uh, Rabboni, which means teacher, Jesus reveals himself. He reveals that he knows her by calling her by name. He knows her personally. In the moment that he says her name, she knows it's him. She recognizes his voice, which reminds us of John chapter 10. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Do you know the voice of Jesus? Are you able to discern his voice among all the other voices of this world? Because there are a lot of messages that seem really, really good. A lot of messages that, that seem like this would be a good way to live your life. Some that are even flavored a little bit like Jesus, or maybe a lot like Jesus, and yet Jesus is the only one who gives eternal life that we were made for. Verse 17, Jesus says to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. So Mary goes to the disciples. She lets go of Jesus. She goes where he sent her, and she tells them, I have seen the Lord. And they knew, they saw, Peter and John saw Mary earlier that day. They knew the pain that she was in, the desperation that she had felt just a short time earlier, and now she sees the resurrected Jesus and everything has changed. Do we proclaim The risen Lord are we quick to tell brothers and sisters in Christ of what God has done how God has saved us how God has provided for us how God has met us are reminding each other of who God is and what he has done is crucial to us continuing to believe to grow in that belief in Jesus are you eager to tell anyone who will listen about the risen Lord. I've been reading uh, this book uh, about persecuted Christians around the globe uh, and how their faith survives in persecution. I mean, I'm talking in prison, horrible circumstances, sometimes uh, in torture. Um, I'm reading, the section I'm in right now is about the church in, in China, a ton of stories about the church in China. and Some argue that the growth of the church in China is unmatched, in Christian history. No, nowhere else has the church exploded like it has in China. They, they went from hundreds of believers to millions and millions of believers, all the while living under communism, all the while living under the threat that, that the government could come in, bust up their church, take people to prison. And from what I've read, it sounds like the normal prison term is three years. Like they, There was this one story where they're talking about this young pastor, and the older pastor's are like, yeah, we don't trust him yet. He hasn't been to prison yet. They count that as, or this guy counted it as, as their seminary. And some of them have done three times in seminary. But still, the church explodes. Well, how does it explode? It's because these believers are telling people about Jesus. And, and I guarantee they're, they're doing it wisely, they're doing it shrewdly. But no matter how wise, no matter how shrewd they are, they're taking great risk of their own lives. Heard uh, someone secondhand uh, talking about Nick Ripken, who is at uh, Mission Connection, and he's uh, he's like the 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 world leader in understanding uh, Christian persecution among the the Muslim parts of the world. Uh, And he said something like this: I won't get the words exactly right, but he said something like Christians persecute the world by not sharing the gospel. We we persecute unbelievers by not telling the hope that we have in Jesus. It's this kind of reverse persecution with much deadlier consequences. So we must speak about Jesus. Are you looking for opportunities to speak about Christ? Are you praying that God would open doors, that God would help you get in conversations? If someone asks you a basic question like, why do you believe in Jesus, do you know what you would say? If someone asked, what is the gospel? Do you know how you'd lay it out for them? Do you know where you'd take them in Scripture? In verses 19 and 20, the ten of the disciples are together in this room. Thomas isn't with them. And they've got the doors locked. I'm sure they felt that they were in danger before this morning's events had happened. Just because Jesus had died, maybe they would be next. But now that the body is missing, and Matthew tells us that, that the authorities had already sent a rumor out that the disciples were the ones that stole the body. So they feel the pressure. They're afraid. They're in this room, locked behind the doors. And then Jesus appears to them. He didn't knock and, and walk through the door. He, he just appears and he speaks to them. He says, peace be with you. And he shows them the scars in his hands, and the scar on his side. Verse 21, Jesus said to them, again. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So Jesus is sending them into the world. And we remember that he had promised that the Holy Spirit would come. After, After Jesus ascends, the Holy Spirit would be would, would be given to them. So this is not like another account of what happened at Pentecost in Acts when, when the, the Spirit comes down, the tongues of fire. This is, not, this is not that. I think this serves to anticipate that the Holy Spirit will be given, that this is the way that the, the disciples will be empowered to go and tell the world about Christ. Verse 23 is, is about them sharing the gospel. The disciples didn't have a, a special power or authority to forgive Sins. This is really, if they, as they preach the gospel, if people responded in belief, then those sins would be forgiven. And certainly if people rejected the gospel, then those sins would not be forgiven. But Jesus tells them that they're the ones that are going out in the world. They're being sent just as the Father had sent him. So Jesus was sending his followers. Jesus' people are the plan to tell a perishing world that there's life in Jesus that we do not have to remain in our broken, sin-riddled existence, that Jesus died for us, that he rose from the dead, so that we too could raise to life with him. Verse 24, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. Now, Thomas, we know, he's unfortunately labeled Doubting Thomas, maybe one of the worst like Christian nicknames you could get. But I'm grateful that this story is in here about Thomas, because we all have doubts. We all struggle. If you doubt, you're in good company. And as you'll see, you're loved, by Jesus. You can doubt here. You can doubt in this church. I understand that that in churches there, there's this pressure that I don't think we can escape in some ways. That, that you have to have faith. You shouldn't doubt. You, you just have to believe. And, and I, don't, I don't know if I can do much about that, but from time to time I, I try to tell you that your questions, your doubts are welcome here. We aren't going to shy away from, from trying to meet you in those doubts with scripture. Um, but Jesus certainly was not threatened by doubts. He met those doubts with truth. He desired for Thomas to no longer live in this place of disbelief, but he wanted him to believe. Verse 26, it says, eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Thomas told them what he thought he needed. He said, I'm never going to believe unless I get to see those scars, unless I get to touch them with my own hands. And Jesus meets him right in that said belief. He invites him to touch the scars, to touch his side. And we don't know if Thomas ended up doing that or not. He certainly saw Jesus, though. Jesus urges him, Man, don't just believe. Believe. I'm right here. And Thomas responds, he answers, my Lord and my God. And and notice that Jesus does not correct him there. There's a popular um, thought or belief that Jesus does not claim to be God. If, If Jesus did not think he was God, this would be an excellent opportunity to correct that. He doesn't say, whoa, 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 I'm not God. I'm just pointing you to God the Father he doesn't say that at all. He affirms his belief that Jesus is the Lord, that he is God. And then he speaks a blessing to all of us who, who, who don't get the chance, who didn't get the chance to see Jesus after he had risen. Well, one day we will get to see him, but, but he says, Blessed are those who have not yet, or have not seen and yet have believed. Right? This means that even though we don't get to see Jesus, we can believe in him and it would have been amazing to see jesus but what we get to read is the eyewitness accounts of those who have seen him and that's the next best thing getting to hear from someone who was there verses 30 and 31 john tells us the point of this gospel it says now jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That The point of this book, the reason John wrote this, is so that we would believe in Jesus, the creator, that he came, that he lived. He was a spotless lamb, sacrificed for your sin, who didn't just die, but he rose from the dead. He defeated sin and death. So that we could be forgiven of sin and be brought into the family of God the Father. That we could have eternal life. Not because of anything we've done, but only by believing totally unearned grace through faith in Jesus. So if John wants us to believe, it matters that we know what is, what is this belief David Platt, who's a pastor and author, I've heard him uh, talk about this multiple times. He, he says something along the lines of, imagine I'm interviewing Satan, and I say to Satan, do you believe that Jesus is God, the creator of all things? Well, Satan would answer, yes. Do you believe that the Bible is God's word? Satan would answer, yes. Do you believe that Jesus died, that he became sin, that he took on the wrath of God and rose from the dead? The answer would be, Yes. Do you believe that salvation is only by grace through faith in Jesus? And Satan would answer yes. But we know Satan is not saved. So what is belief then? Well, Thomas nails it. He cries out, my Lord and my God. Mary to the disciples says, I've seen the Lord. The other disciples talking to Thomas, they say, I've seen the Lord. Churchgoers, is Jesus your Lord? In chapter 20, they recognized the grave could not hold down Jesus, and they made him Lord of their lives, which is what Jesus asks of us. That we believe in him, and it it changes everything when we believe in the resurrected Jesus. Most of the disciples gave up their lives to physical death in order to follow Jesus. Secular uh, historians recognize that Christianity explodes seemingly overnight. Immediately, there were hundreds who claimed to have seen the resurrected Jesus? Certainly, Christianity went from Christianity went from this this tiny little it looked like a, an offshoot of Judaism with a handful of followers and explodes into a world religion in just a handful of years. Thomas, who doubted, he ended up bringing the gospel to India, and the church. Uh, there's a church there that he started that is known to this day. One of our missionaries actually. Um, he, he tells about, I can't remember, his grandfather's great-grandfather going to that church and, and meeting Jesus, the church that was started by Mr. Doubting Thomas. For these men and women, the resurrection changed everything. Does the resurrection change everything for you? Now, I, don't mean, I don't mean do you believe in Jesus. I mean, does his rising from the dead change every aspect of your life? You know that believing in Jesus isn't just something that impacts Sundays. It doesn't just mean you read your Bible a bit and you pray, or even you read your Bible a lot and pray a lot. It doesn't mean that you just work harder at being kind to people, or or that you're, you're, you're more generous with your finances. It's supposed to permeate your life. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you need to pick up your cross and follow me. That we need to we need to die to ourselves daily. And what I'm afraid of is is living a lukewarm Christian life. To be lulled into this lazy Christianity that becomes more and more about me and less and less about Jesus. That the older I get, the more used to Jesus I get, the less I will care about glorifying him, about making him known. That I'll be satisfied with only telling a few people about the, the love that Jesus has for them. That more and more my, my attention will shift to building my little kingdom instead of the kingdom that Jesus is building. Knowing Jesus resurrected from the dead ought to change everything in my life. What does the resurrection not change in your life? What corner of your life does the resurrection not impact because it should change everything. It should change our finances. It it, it should change schooling decisions, career decisions. It, It should change our leisure. It should change how we prepare for retirement. It should change how we actually live in retirement. It should change our relationships, right? Who you date, who you marry, the people you spend time with. It should change how we parent, how we grandparent, Harvest, I hope that none of us will live as Christians in name only, but that the resurrected Jesus will be Lord over our lives. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we thank you that the grave could not keep you, that you rose from the dead, you defeated sin and death, and in doing that, you proved that the payment was accepted by God. You paid for our sins, and because of that, we can be forgiven of sin if we trust in you. Jesus, I pray for for this church, Lord. I love these people, Lord. And I just don't want any of us to continue in American Christianity where we're just really comfortable. And we talk about you some. We do some things in your name, but we're really not fully living for you. And God, I'm so susceptible to that, Lord. I continuously have to fight that. I'm continuously convicted uh, of my Christian laziness, Lord. God, we repent of that, Lord. Will you help us to follow hard after you, Jesus? Will you help us, no matter how afraid we are, no matter what excuses we have, to tell people about you, Jesus? And I pray... I pray that there would be many, many people that come to know you because of people in this church, just boldly proclaiming, I've seen the Lord. God, we love you. Thank you for letting us gather together in, in such freedom. And I pray that we would not waste what you've given us, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.